Take your Bibles tonight and let's go to 1 Samuel and chapter number 5, although we'll start in chapter 4 just to get a little bit of the context here. I believe that'll help our preaching time the most. 1 Samuel and chapter number 4. We've been in a series in 1 Samuel and entitled this, When a Nation Needs Revival. Well, I think we're right there, right? When a Nation Needs Revival. And so we're going to begin reading. I'd like to highlight a few verses in chapter 4 and then just go right into chapter 5. And so follow along as we read here 1 Samuel chapter 4 and beginning in verse number 1. It says, And the word of the Lord came to all of Samuel. I'm sorry. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of of our enemies. So in many ways, they were treating the Ark of the Covenant as though a good luck charm uh, to try to get their help. And so uh, the people, it says, sent to Shiloh, verse 4, that they might bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth, notice the description here, but dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant, of God. Now drop down to verse number seven. The Philistines were afraid. I want you to see this. The Philistines were afraid for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hands of these mighty gods. These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the what? All the plagues in the wilderness. So they are terrified at the idea that The Ark of the Covenant has come. Verse 10. um, Well, I mean, they had a pep rally in verse 9. They got themselves all psyched up and said, quit yourselves like men and fight. And they did. And the Philistines fought. And notice verse 10 says, and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter for their fellow of Israel, 30,000 footmen. Notice this. And the Ark of God was taken And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were slain. Very sad situation. Notice verse number 13. And when he came, talking about the soldier that had escaped, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside. I want you to notice that. He sat on a seat by the wayside. Verse number 18 says that when he heard about the ark, in the middle of the verse it says, he fell from off the seat backward, And it records how he broke his neck and he died because he was old and heavy. And heavy. Heavy set. All right. I'm just reading the Bible. That's all I'm doing is reading the Bible. Verse 21, 22. We doing okay? All right. So next what happens is that his daughter-in-law goes into labor and she has the child, but she dies at childbirth. But before she dies, at childbirth, and this would be Phineas's wife. It says she named the name of the child, verse 21, Ichabod, 
which means the glory is departed. The glory is departed. Ichabod, kavod in Hebrew means uh, glory. It has the idea of being heavy. In fact, it's ironic, but Eli was kavod. He was heavy. He was physically heavy. Uh, but the word is used about, that's a weighty individual, you know. And so here it's ironic that she named the son Ichabod. The glory is departed. All right, we're going to join now the Philistine um, victory party in verse 1 of chapter 5 as they are making their way. And it says in verse number 1, chapter 5, And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. About 19 miles unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. You see it displayed there in their display case or close to it. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. Bless his heart. <laughs> right. When they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. <laughs> That's a bummer when your God's all busted up like that, right? <laughs> Man, therefore the priest of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. All right, so there he is, headless, handless. But look at verse six. But the hand of the Lord, you think there's a connection there? His hands are off, but the hand of the Lord is mentioned four times right here. There's a connection. But the hand of the Lord was heavy. It's kavod. It was heavy upon them. Um, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and all the coasts thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of the, of the God of Israel shall not abide with us for... <laughs> For his hand is sore upon us and upon, <laughs> I like this part, and upon Dagon our God. And they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, what shall we do with the ark of the, of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried unto Gath. Let's give it to Gath. Now, you're like hot potato here, Right? And, and, they, and they carried the ark of God of Israel about thither. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great. And they had emeralds in their secret parts. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out and said, Oh, no, you don't. Okay, now that's my translation of that. They cried out, 
They brought the ark of God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. I mean, word had got around rather quickly, don't you know? And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go again to his own place that it slay us not and our people for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city and the hand of God was heavy, very heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with the emeralds and they cry and the cry of the city went up to heaven. I'm telling you, they wish for the day they had never touched that ark of God. Wow. So I've entitled the message this, the victory, the victory of the defeated God. Okay. Did you see the quotation marks? Okay. The victory of the quote, quote, defeated God. They thought they defeated him. The victory of the defeated God. I pray that God would use this message to be just, just an encouragement, an encouragement to everyone that's here. Because our defeats does not mean that he's defeated. You may be seated. We'll consider this intriguing text. I've watched sports for many years, like no doubt many of you, and one thing I've learned about the world of sports is that you cannot always go by appearances. You just can't. It appears, okay, this team is out, this team is down, this team is beat, and then they come back. I mean, sometimes it goes that way. I was talking to Brother Marty Graham, and he was we're just reminiscing a little bit about his dad, Ira. Miss Faye Graham just went home to heaven and we had our funeral service this past week. Such a dear, sweet lady. Thank, thankful to God for her and thankful to God for Brother Ira. But um, Marty was looking back and remembering how that he and his dad and, and a friend maybe would go to an OU game. And he said this about Brother Ira. And many of you have known Ira, Brother Ira for a lot of years and you'll enjoy this. He said, if they got behind, if OU got behind, then Brother Ira was saying, okay, let's go. Let's leave. <laughs> he was thinking, it's over. Let's leave. And they'd say, no, 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 let's stay. Because you can't always go by appearances. Every now and then, OU comes back. <laughs> On the other hand, I've left early from an OU game thinking, all right, they've got that one. I'm going to beat traffic, you know, and get back a little bit. I, I, they've got this one down. And then you hear the stadium in a roar, you know, as you're walking away. And what seemed to be like a certain victory turned out normal. <laughs> Not normal. Oh, mercy. What's a Kentucky guy talking about OU like that for? I hear it right now. I understand where I am. I'm not going to make it. All right, so I'm going to keep moving here. No, I mean, you, you think, oh, man, they got, they've, they've got this. But you can't always go by how things appear. In 1 Samuel 4 through 5, it appears, it appeared that Israel had been defeated. It appeared. And that would be an accurate statement that Israel had been defeated. But also this, it appeared that Israel's God had been defeated. Because watch this, when, when armies fought at that time, it wasn't just this army against this army. It was this army's God against this army's God. 4,000 died in battle. 
30,000 more die in the next battle. There are two leading priests under Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, his sons died in the battle. The Philistines are walking off the field with a major trophy in the most sacred item in Israel's religious history in terms of the Ark of the Covenant and that it represented the presence of God among his people. And you had the, the, uh, the mercy seat, the pure gold mercy seat and the cherubims on each side of it. I mean, this was the sacred item and here they are carrying it off 20 miles, nearly 20 miles. I mean, if it was modern day history, then they'd be taking selfies with it. They'd be taking pictures with it. They would be posting it everywhere. Look what we did. They'd be waving flags with it. Look what we did to Israel and to Israel's God. And by all appearances, by all appearances, Jehovah had been sorely defeated. But I'm here to tell you tonight, there was still hope. So what's going on in this? I, I do want to make sure that we're all on the same page as to the context of this and also the, the connection and why this is so important. And I think timely as to where we are as a nation and even as a church family and as those that have joined us here this uh, Sunday for Welcome Heartland Sunday. You see, they were defeated at Aphek. Aphek was the location of the battle against the Israelites and the Philistines. They were defeated at Aphek, but here's why. They didn't deal with the sin at Shiloh. At Shiloh, the sin at Shiloh was that the sons of Eli, that they were, um, they were taking advantage of the offerings that were brought by the people, the sacrifices, and they were taking more than their share and they were growing fat on it. That's how Eli himself got heavy. He was enjoying a cut of the meat. And so he's a heavyset 98-year-old man. And the Bible says, in fact, it's interesting because uh, Eli was sitting down. The very first time we meet Eli is in chapter 1 in verse number 9. And he sat on a seat by the, tab the tabernacle at Shiloh. He's sitting down. I believe it's rather symbolic, especially as you come into chapter number 4, because here's a man that ought to be taking a stand against the wickedness, even of his own sons that were uh, taking advantage of the people and that were committing sexual sin with the women that were there at the tabernacle. And yet he wasn't taking a stand. Yes, he rebuked them, but he did not remove them. He didn't really deal with it. And listen, here's a, here's a warning right here, okay? We got a little bit of preaching before we get to the message, okay? And so here's a warning. You can be in a holy place and yet your heart not be holy. And that's where Hophni and Phinehas were. I mean, they were wearing the ephod and they were wearing all the religious garb of, uh, of the Jews and even of the priests. And yet they were committing sexual sin. Let me, let me encourage you right up front here. Let's just deal with the same things right up front with the students here that are here tonight, as well as all the young people that are here tonight. Everybody tune in right here. Listen, don't sit through service after service and all the adults that are here tonight. Don't sit through service after service and go through all the motions and have all the right looks and yet not your heart be right with God. Yeah. God takes that rather seriously. And he did with, with Hophni and Phinehas. And they maybe thought they were getting away with it. And so when they were defeated, they wondered, why are we defeated here? Why is God? You know, we blame God for a lot of things that we brought on ourselves. And here they were defeated and they were wondering what in the world went wrong. Well, here's what they ought to have done. They should have just looked in the Bible to see, what does God say? Why were we defeated? And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and also in Leviticus chapter 26, they would see this, that when our people have gone wrong against God, when we've sinned against God, then sometimes there comes 
comes an enemy into the land and begins to defeat the people of God. And what they ought to recognize is that our sinfulness has led to this defeat and we ought to get right with God. We ought to repent and, and, and cry out to God. And it would have been really good had they done that at, when they lost 4,000 men. And yet they did not. And so they, they said, well, what should we do? And so somebody said, hey, I know, I know. They didn't seek God about it. They didn't seek God about it. They didn't, they didn't look in the Word. In fact, uh, Triton, I'm not sure where Triton is right now, but Triton, are you nine years old, Triton? Is that right? Ten, okay, yeah, that, I should have known that. Ten years old. He said, you know, Brother Jason, this is after I preached this message a few weeks ago. He said, they didn't do what God's word said. Well, 10 years old, he's got it figured out. You're going to be defeated if you don't do what God's word says. Now, let me, let me be clear here. The presence of the ark wasn't necessarily a problem in the battlefield because they would, they've done that before. Joshua chapter three, as they went across the Jordan River, then they had the Ark of the Covenant that went with them. It, it led the way there. In, in Joshua chapter number six, as they're going around the walls of Jericho, the Ark of the Covenant was there. Listen, the presence of the Ark was not the problem necessarily. The problem was this. The problem was the presence of Hophni and Phinehas acting like they were spiritual. They lost an affect because they did not deal with the problem at Shiloh. And, and the reason that they were so sorely defeated is not, I want everybody to be clear about this, is not because the Philistines were a superior fighting force. It's not the reason why. It wasn't because they had better strategy. It wasn't because they had better weaponry. It was not because Dagon was greater than Jehovah. Not at all. But here's the problem. The reason that they lost is because somebody that was supposed to be taking a stand was sitting down on the job. Sinfulness and passivity allows the glory of God to begin to depart. Sinfulness is going to come. People are going to be sinful. People are going to have sinful desires. Sinful desires may find its way even into local church services. In the sense that somebody will say, hey, preacher, we've got a lot of preachers in here today. I just want to encourage all the preachers here before we move on. Uh, hey, preacher, how about we do this song? It's pretty jazzy, pretty lively, pretty uh, secular. Well, here's what we don't need. We don't need a bunch of men of God sitting out on the job and saying, oh yeah, I mean, you're, you're the music man. What do I know about music? I don't know music theory. I'm telling you, I'm confessing. I don't know music theory. I, I hear it's hard. <laughs> yes, I'm getting witnesses. Yeah. I, I don't know music theory, but I, I, know, I know ungodly music when I hear it. I, I know what the world, in fact, the world knows what the world's music sounds like. And, and, and the world says, why, why would that kind of music be in church? But what can happen is if we just kind of grow a little bit passive about this, I don't have time to preach all this, but it sure does, it's worth preaching again, that if we just kind of grow passive about this and say, yeah, just go ahead in the youth department, just do whatever you want to do, that's fine. Next thing you know, the youth groups become carnal 
And then it starts showing up in a praise band on a church platform. A pulpit's no longer in place. Now it's a little podium or less. And some guy sitting on a stool. Huh? Looking pretty snazzy. Huh? Swanky. I just like that word. Looking pretty, pretty swanky, you know. And he's up there not really preaching against sin because if he preaches against sin, people will leave. And if he preaches real long, people will leave. And so he'll give you about a 15-minute little sermonette 20-minute sermonette, which 20 minutes we've determined here at Southwest is just the introduction. <laughs> Sometimes it's the scripture reading. No, I mean, I'm just simply saying it's not a contest. How long can you preach? No, it's not that at all. I've just learned this. It takes time and effort to really preach the Bible in a way that's relevant and that's not watered down, but that is, that is graciously confrontational to say, listen, we are sinful people that desperately need to be confronted with the Word of God. And when, when people that are supposed to be taking a stand are just kind of casually giving five little tips about this or that, and just, instead of saying, thus say the Lord, and we can't have that kind of music in here, and we can't have that kind of worldliness in here and we can't have that kind of pharisaicalism in here as well. None of those are healthy for a church. So I'm just simply saying the reason that churches begin to go left is because the people that are supposed to be taking a stand are no longer standing or the reason that colleges begin to go left is because people that are supposed to be saying no, we're not, we're not going there are no longer standing on the Word of God and no longer standing for holiness and not taking the Word of God and applying it to where it, be, where it ought to be and to say, he said, be holy in all manner of conversation. And that means every way of life. And suddenly what happens is that churches become full of consumers and colleges become full of consumers and people are checking the wind to see what kind of direction do people want to go in. And that's what happens. I'm telling you, it's not, listen, we're not losing the battle even in America because socialism is coming in like a flood or because transgenderism is coming in like a flood or, or secular liberalism is coming in like a flood. No, it's because people of God who ought to be taking a stand are sitting down on the job. And that's why we are where we are. So what do we do now? I mean, all appearances, it seems like, I mean, I get kind of energized in a, in a group like this because you look around and you think, man, we're taking the world over again. But when, you, when reality sets in on Monday or reality sets in and you see the, the direction of our country by all appearances, it sure seems like we're losing more ground than what we're gaining. And it appears that God is being defeated or back in the 60s, God is dead. Oh, really? Did you kill him? God is dead. But you can't go by how things appear. God's making a very clear statement here in this text. One of the statements he's making is that I don't need my people to defend me. I don't, <laughs> I don't need my people to cuddle me. I don't need my people to pick me back up. I'll pick my people up. I don't have to have you. Hey, you know, that's good for all of us to know. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying he doesn't want you. He does want you. But honestly, tonight... The God of heaven does not need us. 
Sometimes we get a little bit of an inflated ego and, and arrogant and think, oh, God is so fortunate to have the likes of us. And, and boy, he wouldn't make it very long without us. Oh, he needs us every hour. No, he doesn't. And, and so we, we begin using God rather than God using us. And we go from singing, thou art holy, to singing, thou art useful. We're in a dangerous place. And what, what is so sad, what is so sad, and I mean, this, this applies to a family and this applies to an individual as well, that, that when a person gets away from God or a family gets away from God, then it makes God look bad. It makes him look bad. I mean, here, here God was being, you understand what I mean when I say, from their perspective, we're carting their God down to, down where'd they go? They went to Ashdod, 19 miles, one of the five premier cities in Philistia. And, and among probably one of their major worship centers was right there. It's the place, by the way, where they took Samson, they took him to Ashdod and said, hey, let's have a big feast and a big festival in honor of Dagon because Dagon has defeated Samson. Same place, same place. What a tragedy that somebody that was supposed to be standing and living for God's holiness was living for himself and brought a bad reputation on God. So there they go. They are carting the Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God and treating it like any other idol. And they're about to learn in a hurry, you don't treat the God of the Bible like you treat any God of the land. It's not the same. And they set him up beside their God, Dagon, and there's the Ark of the Covenant, and there's Dagon. And Dagon, I don't know what he looked like. <laughs> I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Had to look weird, don't you know? Well, some guy went in, you know, to do his early morning devotions that morning to make the early morning sacrifice. He comes in there. Dagon, you okay? <laughs> I, I mean, I got to wonder what's going through this guy's mind. God's falling on his face. And, and the deal is, is, let's say that's the Ark of the Covenant. He's falling on his face like this for the Ark. <laughs> Symbolizing submission, like actually you're God. You got it? That's really what it is. And so this guy comes in and he says, well, this is terrible, but you know, nobody has to know about this. Ah. Brush him off. Shine him. It's sad when you have to make adjustments to your God. I said, it's sad when you have to make adjustments to your God. Help your God out. Well, he eased out. And I, he had to tell somebody. Because, but I mean, I don't know. What, what did, I mean, did it cross his mind? It's not good. Or was this just like a coincidence? Was there an earthquake? What happened? Well, the next morning, I don't know if it's the same guy. <laughs> But somebody came in and there's Dagon this time sprawled out on the floor. Only here's the problem. His head is here and his hands are here and here. 
And he, the guy had to say something like, ah! This is even worse. Where's super glue? What do I do? I mean, how am I going to get this? His head is off. Hey, listen, by the way, okay, so the first time when he's sprawled out there, that's a symbol of submission. But when the head is off and the hands actually in battle, it's gruesome, but they would cut off the hands indicating you can't hurt us no more. And when David stood in victory over Goliath, he took Goliath's sword and cut his head off as a symbol of defeat. So here's the Ark of the Covenant that is supposed to be there like a trophy, like God has been defeated, but here you have Dagon on his face before the God of the Bible, and here you have Dagon totally annihilated, destroyed, executed in his own house, on his battlefield, on his turf, there he is, decapitated. How else you want to put it? Maybe nobody has to know about this. Next thing you know, it's not just Dagon that's having some serious issues. Right? It's not just Dagon having some serious issues. And people are, are dying. They died in Ashdod. And then those that didn't die, they had the emeralds. And so what are the emeralds? Uh, the word means swelling. And it's in the secret parts. You see in chapter 6 and verse number 4 that, that they sent back golden emeralds and they sent back golden mice. So some say, well, maybe it was like the uh, bubonic plague and maybe it's somehow associated with that. Here's all I know. It was bad. Really bad and painful. So painful that the people of Ashdod said, we got to get this out of here. So, okay, call a council. They call the council meeting. And what are we going to do? Okay, let's send it to Gath. Okay, Gath, they send it to Gath. Same thing happened. I mean, this is what God is doing here is he's showing them, listen, this is not coincidental. This is not an accident. This is not something that you're imagining. You're seeing very clearly. You thought that you defeated me, but actually I'm using what appears to be a defeat. And it sure looked that way. It appears to be a defeat, but God is using what appears to be a defeat to actually be a part of the way that he will bring victory. Because he used that battle to get rid of Hophni and Phinehas who need to be removed so that the nation could have revival under Samuel. And he used that situation to remove Eli. And he used that situation to get Israel's attention. I'm telling you when it seems like that the enemy is winning, our God is never defeated. Yes, he may be challenged, but he's never defeated because he's the God who turns defeat into victory. And he showed him that in Ashdod and he showed him that in Gath and Ekron. Ekron said, oh, please don't send it here and send it on down the line. I'm telling you, city after city and they were finally at a place. We got to get rid of this. It became very clear. God is not dead. Even though it appeared that he was defeated and he was dead. Sure just didn't turn out like it appeared. He appeared defeated. 
He stood before Pilate. He stood before Herod. He stood before Annas and Caiaphas. He stood before the high priest of Jerusalem. The crowd cried out. Pilate said, what shall we do with him? And they called king of the Jews and they cried out in unison, crucify him, crucify him. And they beat him brutally. And he laid his life down on the cross and the cross was lifted. And for the span of three hours, darkness was on the face of the earth. A Roman soldier came and punctured his side with a spear and forth came blood and water. And Jesus, who his disciples thought would be the Messiah, would be the one that would deliver them. He hung there as a common thief, dead. And it appeared that God had been defeated. <laughs> and they placed him in a tomb. And they sealed the door of the tomb, the stone of the tomb. And Pilate himself said, make it as sure as you can. The next morning, these ladies came and they, they saw that the stone was already rolled away and they were troubled because they didn't find Jesus there and the angelic being was there and asked, why seek ye the living among the dead? You thought he was defeated. You thought he was down. But listen, what, what seemed to be an apparent defeat of God is actually, is actually the means by which our great God would give the victory for all of us as he arose from the grave that day. And even though it sure seemed like God had been defeated and the Romans thought they had won and the Jews thought they had won and no doubt Satan and the demonic beings, they thought that they had won. But what appeared to be a defeat of God, he turned into a victory. These two men walking on the way to Emmaus, about a six-mile journey, they, they were sad, the Bible says. They were sad. You know why they were sad? Because they thought God was defeated. We thought he would have been the one that would have delivered, delivered Israel. And Jesus began to speak to them and to show to them that, listen, he's not defeated, but actually he's the God who takes what seems to be a defeat and turns it into victory. Amen. And churches that named his name, seemed like they were defeated as they were persecuted and ran out of Jerusalem and ran out of Judea and on the run and even from a man named Saul that, that, was, that was chasing them down. And it sure appeared, it sure did seem like that churches that were his churches in that day and time were being defeated by a superior force in the Jewish people and in the, in the Roman people. But listen, what appears to be a defeat is actually what led to great church planting expansion. Because our great God, even though it seems like he's defeated, is never defeated. He takes what seems to be a defeat and uses that the means by which great victory would be accomplished. Mercy. This is exciting. Man, it sure seems like all these wicked, vile things are going on in America. And the leadership of our country making some very poor decisions. You wonder what in the world is going to happen. And it seems like defeat. 
And we can, if we're, not, if we're not thinking right, we can look around and think, what in the world's going on? But listen, friend, God is still God. Yes. He's still in control. He's not lost his hands. He's not lost his head. He's still firmly in control. And he's able to give the victory regardless of how things seem. I'm telling you, he can take what seems to be a defeat after defeat after defeat and turn it into victory. You might look at your life. And there's areas where you're defeated. But listen, your defeat does not mean he's defeated. And you're not defined by your defeat you're defined by who your God is. And that's not, that's not validating anything, any sinfulness or any way that is against him in, by no means. Listen, the fact that God turned the tide here, that was not in any way condoning what Israel and how they'd been living. But actually that was God saying, I'm still not done with Israel even though they've been wicked. And I'm just saying to you tonight, God's not done with you even though you may have made some wrong decisions. Praise God. And what seems to be a defeat in your life doesn't have to remain a defeat. It can actually be used of God as a sign of victory. Been through a divorce. Do you have to let that define you? You say, well, it was a defeat. I understand that. But listen, he's still on the throne in your life. He can still use you. He can still work in your life. I realize there are consequences that are ongoing, but listen, that, that does not in any, way, any wise define how God is able to work in your life. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe you've been misused. Maybe, maybe this is in your past or, or these wrong decisions. You've got these consequences, these wrong decisions and things that have happened in your life. And by all appearances, it seems like your life is just defeated, but he's not. He's not be some time, student, this semester that you're going to get down where you're going to bomb some tests. I'm just going to tell you, no doubt about it. I bombed my very first basic biblical Hebrew test. The professor didn't mention that we were going to have a quiz. It's all his fault, don't you know? <laughs> no, not at all. i tell you what that did. That got my attention. And I began to pray, God, if you'll help me. I know you speak Hebrew. And if you'll help me, I'll be ever so thankful. And God took that time of defeat. Are you, are you listening to me? He took that time of really just messing up royally and helped me get under his authority. And God gave victory. I've made other decisions in my life, and no doubt you have as well. And, and listen, that's no reflection on how great God is, because God's great. He could have kept me from making those wrong decisions, but He's so sovereign. He lets us make our own decisions, and then we have to live with the consequences. But I've made some wrong decisions, and no doubt you have as well. And I've gotten down on myself and discouraged and disappointed and embarrassed and, and all those things. Listen, I'm sure everybody here has been through that tonight. But listen, if you, if you just stay right there, and you're defeated... You'll live out your days in that condition. But if you'll say this, God, I can't do this on my own. I've got to have your help. He's still the great God who can help you have the victory. To say no to temptation. To trust him through the trials. To get through the circumstances of your life that are way beyond what you can handle. Because he is God and always will be. Amen.
what seems to be a defeat, God can actually use because He can make masterpieces out of our messed up lives. He certainly can. Praise His holy name. That's the victory of the defeated God. Because He's not really defeated even when we seem to be. Let's stand together here tonight. What represents defeat in your life? Maybe you've made some wrong choices. Maybe even you're starting the semester here this year and you're concerned about how things are going to go because, I mean, so far so good, but you're only a couple days into this and you're wondering about how you're going to make it. Maybe there's a marriage here tonight that has been defeat after defeat after defeat. Listen, God's way still works. His plan will work for you. You've got to receive His help. And even though you've suffered some defeat along the way, He's not defeated. And He's able. And Father, tonight I pray that You'd help each and every one here this evening, that, God, they might just surrender themselves to you to say, I want your will for my life. And, God, I'm so grateful tonight that even when we've messed up royally, Lord, you extend forgiveness and mercy, and you're able to cleanse and to help. And, God, I thank you, Lord, that you are the great God and that you change not. And, Lord, regardless of our circumstances and even regardless of how things appear, and maybe someone even right now, they're looking at their set of circumstances and it seems overwhelming. It seems ne nearly impossible, but God, I know that you're able to help them. And I pray tonight in this invitation time, dear Lord, that you would speak to hearts and help, help us and encourage us from this text, Lord, just like you intended in the days of Israel of old. Dear Lord, we thank you that we're privileged to serve you as the true and living God. And I pray that you'd bless this time of invitation now tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Page 505, as we stand and as we're singing here tonight, would you come, have thine own way, Lord. That's what he wants you to do. Just let the Lord have his way in your life as Brother Aaron leads us on this first verse.